Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and joining us this evening, uh, he is the creator of uh, Hyperborea, which is a fantastic OSR system setting uh, all around just a you know, cool-looking product. The third edition is out now on Kickstarter. Uh, looking at uh, fulfillment towards the end of the year and uh, early next year. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm bearing the lead here. Welcome to Rolling Bones, Jeffrey Tulanian. Jeffrey, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate being on. No problem at all. It's always good to have uh, someone from this space come on, especially someone with a uh, campaign that is going on right now. So uh, let's begin at the beginning here with uh, some sure. of these questions that everyone gets asked when they come on uh okay we're, we're gonna start right at the beginning how did you get into rpgs uh well i was uh i, I was in the fifth grade and it was uh a, it was a typical uh new england winter and it was uh it, there was an indoor recess because it was snowing so hard outside back in the days when we still had school when it when it snowed um so uh, one of the kids brought this uh, brought this game into class, and it was called Dungeons and Dragons. And so he showed us this game, and we played it during uh, indoor recess. There were like three of us, and um, so we had so much fun with it, creating characters and stuff like that. My first character was um, so you know, like I said, I was in the fifth grade. My first character was Balbo Baggins, cousin of Bilbo, of course. And uh, so we played in school for a little while, and then we had so much fun that it was, we decided, hey, let's get together right after school and continue this game. And uh, we were playing the Keep on the Borderlands, and um, it, we ju it just took it from there, and I, I got super into it, and, um, and uh, I soon o ordered uh, my own set, uh, which was the Holmes box set of uh, basic D&D. And started running uh, games for the neighborhood kids where I lived. Gotcha, gotcha. Cool. So you've already answered one of the uh, one of the other questions that I like to ask everyone, as far as who your favorite character or, or who your first character was. Yeah, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so that that's uh, that's good to know right off the beginning. I feel like yeah. everyone's first uh, RPG character is a rip off of some other fantasy character. Right. Right. It's, you know, we I, were young and just trying to figure out something and we didn't know, you know, I guess, you know, <laughs> when you're kids, you just go with what is influencing you at that time. And you just try and have some fun with it, you know, mm -hmm. which is great, which is what it's all about. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll put it this way. I've not had anyone answer that question with, this is my wholly original character uh, with with zero noticeable inspirations that I just came up with in the spur of the moment when uh, right when I first started playing. And if I do ever get that, I'll know that someone is lying to me. <laughs> right. I know. It wasn't until, like, I think, you know, even going uh, deeper into the 1980s, there, it was a lot of that going on. And then I think, like, when the 90s came along and all like the white wolf vampire type games started to show up mm -hmm. and the, the more storytelling oriented games started to appear, people started to come up with these long, elaborate origin stories to the character. I used to cringe mm -hmm. when some of my guys would show up with like a three page origin of their character. And, mm -hmm. you know, I remember one time there was a guy whose whose character was killed, uh, you know, with, within an hour of him. Mm -hmm you know, reading off this origin story of his guy that he was so upset. He was like, I put so much work into that origin story. I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's the thing about OSR and, and all of that uh, original stuff. When, when I talk about wanting a, an in-depth backstory for my players, I'm speaking as a fifth edition GM when I say that, because in those older or older style games, when, when you have characters starting at early levels, the likelihood of them dying pretty high. You're, you're gonna... Yeah, they're pretty fragile, which is why one of the things I like to encourage is I try to tell them, um, don't come up with an elaborate origin story for your first level character. Let your early adventures of your first level character, if you survive to that third level or fourth level, then those early adventures, those are your origin story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, how would you describe your play style when it comes to both, you know, playing an actual RPG and then when you step behind the screen as a GM? Well, you know, I do enjoy a variety of character types when I'm a player. <laughs> um, like right now, um, I'm playing in an um, old school essentials game. And I'm playing a half-orc knight. So this character is very, uh, he's very honor-bound, even though he's lawful evil. He's, he's um, so he's, he's a take-charge kind of guy and wants to, you know, organize everything. But I've also can play the complete flip type of character where I, I enjoy playing um, a thief or some type of, you know, magic user type class. So I like to bounce all around and experiment with different things. One of my favorite characters I ever played for several years uh, from the uh, throughout most of the 90s was a necromancer when we were playing playing second edition AD&D. And um, so I like to bounce around. Um, but as far as um, as far as my style when I'm behind the screen, I guess it all depends on the campaign and the setting that I'm running at the time. I've had several um, long-term campaigns that I've run over the years. I've been, you know, I've been doing this since 1981. So, you know, it's been 40 years of doing this stuff. And um, so I've run worlds that I've made up. I've run Greyhawk extensively. Um, and, you know, lately I've been, for the last decade, I've been running my Hyperborea games, which has its own tone and flavor because it's inspired by uh, the pulp fiction authors such as, you know, Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. So it has more of that sort of 
um, dark uh, tone to it. And it's, you know, it's, it's a human based um, setting. So this, you know, so, but I do enjoy running games like Greyhawk that have all, you know, the elves and the dwarves and halflings and all the machinations of that setting and its history and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, so I, I guess it's the same answer for, to both parts of your question that it's, it, it, it's a variety of things. I'm not really, I don't really pin myself to one specific style. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, do you find yourself primarily behind the screen as the GM, as so many uh, designers and, and writers within role-playing do, or do you get to step on the other side every now and then? Um, well, I would say that for since, since the mid-90s, um, yes, it was mostly me uh, for, with my group. I've been playing with the same group of guys since about 1993. Um, we've had a few... Ch- few people that have left over that span of time and a few other guys that have come in but it's mostly been me but in the last few years um we have a player that's been um, running games a lot himself so it's nice so i'm basically splitting time and it's nice because you know so we'll text each other during the week because our game is every tuesday night and we'll text each other during the week and say you know do you want to run this week or do you want to run? And, you know, if one of us is like, oh, you know, I have an event for one of my kids. I'm going to be, you know, busy. I'm going to be a little bit late. So do you mind running the game? So it's nice to have that luxury that either one of us can run at any given on any given week. Absolutely. Now, this can be a difficult question when, uh, you know, you, you have so much invested in this hobby of RPGs. There's a lot of fond memories tied up with, the hobby itself, but if you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what would that be? Fondest RPG memory. It's really, it's really tough, but because there's been so many good ones, but um, a recent one that was that was that that we're still talking about, and it happened several months ago, that was just hilarious. Was um, the player character party was fighting um, a vampire, and uh, they, it was a tough fight on the early going, but the but they started to get the upper hand, and the vampire was not just going to allow himself to be slain by these player, player characters. So he assumed his um, his his sort of gaseous form. His just he turned into this sort of mist, right? And he's attempting to escape. So one of the guys in the party said, um, one of the my players said, "Oh, I have." Um, I have a bellows in my backpack. I'm like, what are you doing with the bellows? It's like, he shows us his character sheet. He's like, it's right here. It's on my character sheet. I'm like, okay, what are you going to do with the bellows? It's like, I'm going to suck the vampire in, into the bellows. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So this is, this is where tabletop RPGs, uh, totally, uh, destroy, uh, video game counterparts, right? Because you can't just make something up like that in a video game. This is where, you know, player creativity trumps you know, the defined parameters of video game. So he comes up with this idea. And, I, and so it's so in the Hyperborea system, we have um, different um, tests and feats that you can perform there that are attribute based. So you can have like um, a test of strength, which is a normal hard thing to do for, for a strong person or, or a, um, an extraordinary feat of strength, which is doing something super heroic. 
So, um, so, but and it also, it's also for dexterity and constitution, these things. So I said to him, I said, okay, so let's, um, let's have you roll a, an extraordinary feat of dexterity because this seems like something impossible. So it's a percentile roll. And I forget what he needed. He needed like, I was somewhere around, uh, he'd probably remember it was something like 24% or 32% chance of success. Mm-hmm. And he made the roll. So they, he sucked up the vampire into the bellows. And, you know, the group goes wild. They're all high-fiving. We have a, you know, vampire imprisoned in a bellows. It's, yeah. it, and it's just like, it's the kind of things like that that just, like, make it worth playing, right? Because you have mm. so much fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a ton of fun. I killed a vampire by doing X stupid thing or X hilarious right. things. So that That's up there. That... That actually tops the the best one I'd heard so far was uh, taking a sun sword in a mage hand and dropping it in Strahd's coffin. That oh, was geez. the that was that's the one you just surpassed there. So, <laughs> I don't know. That's a good one too. <laughs> that's that a pretty kill, good one. Did they kill him? Uh, yeah, yeah, they killed yeah. him. I was not in that game. I heard that story secondhand from the the dungeon master, but. That's that's how his players yeah. got around fighting Strahd. Yeah. So they, I mean, they even went further, my guys, after they had the vampire stuck in the bellows, right? They <laughs> made a raft and they stuck it on this river and they waited till the sunlight was blazing perfectly. And they set up a series of mirrors around the bellows. <laughs> and then and then they did something to, to make the bellows open up mm-hmm. so, so that the mist would come out and then all the sunlight and the mirrors would just fry the vampire in, the, in daylight. <laughs> oh god that's torture right but it's so funny because it, it probably took them and it, it was probably the whole, they they discussed it for so long that it was probably like a 45 minute endeavor in real time <laughs> because they were going through all the different things that they should do how are they going to kill this thing mm-hmm. you know it's just so funny and we know but that's when they're they're having fun right yep absolutely absolutely those manic planning sessions where someone's got the the ribbon on the map and all that the, those are the best to witness as a, as oh, a yeah. gm and until and until they start to argue about something and yes. it's like they and they can't make a decision and you're like all right somebody needs to make a decision here mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh oftentimes like you said those those things can be derailed by by arguments and sometimes those are caused by uh problem players because let's face it we share the table with all kinds of different people some of them we love and some of them we we don't so (laughs) if you have a uh a kind of best or worst story about that guy who ruined everything for everyone that you're comfortable sharing on the show what what would that be oh geez there's been plenty of there's been so many things that you know somebody has done something that was you know so dumb that it, it, it totally it's it's usually because what usually happens i don't have any specific instances that i want to cite but what usually happens is the players come up with a plan to do something and they decide you know that you know i have so i have about six guys in my group right it varies from week to week it could be five on a given week or whatever so if they come up with some type of elaborate plan to manage something and they decide that it's time to execute it. And one of the guys just decides that he's just going rogue and doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. And his, and, and, and they're, you know, 
the rest of the guys are just, you know, shocked and chagrined that he didn't follow the plan and that, you know, so it always turns into this huge debate, like, why didn't you listen? And so, I mean, there's always guys like that. And, it, and, uh, and so, you know, I guess you have to address it sometimes um, with potentially problem players who don't want to collaborate with the, the rest of the, the group and they, or they, um, or guys who like want to hog the spotlight or, you know, what I like to say is, you know, there's one microphone in the room, you know, you, at some point you have to drop the microphone and give it to the next person, you know, because mm-hmm. you, you, you could have the, you know, the player that's, you know, that talks too much. Right. And, and, and they're, and they're usually a good player and they're very creative and everything, but at some point you have to give up the mic. Absolutely. So uh, last of these introductory questions here before we kind of dive into the specifics of, of your career and your campaign here. Sure. Um, and I'll tell you, the answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Okay. Uh, but with the exception of your logo or the name of your game, if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Oh, boy. These are strange questions. If I could put anything on a T-shirt, yeah. do you mean like a like a piece of art or anything? Anything, piece of art, slogan, some kind of appliance. I've had people do that to me before. Anything. <laughs> I mean, is, does it have to be something that hasn't been done before? You can. It can be anything you want. If you think it's been done before, it's okay. You know, I, I would. Okay, so. Um, I, I guess I haven't seen it before, but I'm sure it's been done because I follow the uh, the Frazetta girls so much. But the Frank Frazetta uh, painting that was originally on the the, um, the 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 paperback novel Conan the Conqueror, when he's uh, he's on the horse and he's jump, he's he's got the axe in hand and his stallion is just like rearing up, and um, that's one of my favorite paintings of all time. I always loved that one. I thought it would look awesome on a T-shirt. Definitely. It's probably been done. I don't know. I haven't looked around. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to talk to Joe Manganello about <laughs> that's on a t shirt. I know. Cool. Yeah, well, he's he's done some stuff with the Frazetta girls, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got it's I think it's Death Dealer four or five that I have on a hoodie that I bought from Death Saves. Oh, I have a I have I can uh, one up you on that one. I have a, um, I have a death dealer denim jacket. I bought a whole bunch of nice. death dealer patches and put them all in this jacket. Went out to dinner with my wife <laughs> to a nice restaurant um, <laughs> the other night, and I'm like, and she was, you know, she was looking at what I was wearing. She's like, you're gonna wear your death dealer jacket? I'm like, yeah, why not? I'm just being me. The things that our wives put up with. My, my wife right? is, is on right now, and I'm sure there have been times where I've left the house in my, my D&D uh, tomato t-shirt. Where right. she's like, are you really going to wear that where we're yeah. going? But <laughs> It is what it is. You have to accept me for who I am, honey. Absolutely. <laughs> cool, well... Those are the introductory questions that everyone gets asked. So, uh, you know, let's dig in here. Um, you mentioned running a lot in the, uh, you know, the world of Greyhawk. So, I mean, let's start there. You actually got the chance to 
work, uh, you know, through Troll Lord Games with Gary Gygax on uh, Castle Zagig, or however that is supposed to be pronounced. How did that come about? What was that experience like? Um, well, it came about because um, it was uh, it was actually kind of funny because I was working on my um, some of my stuff with my Greyhawk campaign, and I was looking up stuff um, on the internet, you know, looking to see if there are any you know resources out there because there was you know good stuff to be found. There was a great website. I don't know if it's still around, but it was called Cannon Fire. And it was like an, it was dedicated to all Greyhawk related stuff. And, um, so I was mostly into the older type of Greyhawk stuff created by Gary and Rob Kuntz. Um, but it covered everything. Um, it may still be around. I really have no clue, but it was excellent. So anyway, I was searching around looking for Greyhawk stuff and I randomly found that Gary Gygax had a call out for freelance, um, submissions to part, partake in this project called Igsburg, which was the um, the town set um, next to Castle Zaggy. And um, so I thought, oh, great. You know, I was a I was a struggling writer at the time. I, you know, just I was trying to get my foot in the door with something. And I had some short fiction that I had published a few places, but really it was like, you know, fanzine type stuff. And so I decided I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to send, you know, submit something to Gary. I submitted, like I created a few encounter areas and different NPCs and, um, and, um, sent, sent them in, in the format that I believed that he wanted them in. And this was like on a Friday night back in 2005. So Monday morning comes along and I, and I'm opening up my email and I see Gary Gygax in my inbox and I panicked you know, looking at him like, Oh my God, uh, this is going to be my polite rejection form letter of some sort. And as it turned out, he liked what I had, what liked what I had done and, um, welcomed me onto the team. So I started to write, um, these, uh, this sort of city block it was divided into the city was divided into all these sections. So that there were different authors writing each writing a different section of the city. <laughs> so I had one. And then what ended up happening was other people were um, not making their deadlines or they were quitting the project prematurely. So other city sectors were opening up. So I grabbed some of them. I said, and Gary, you know, said, you sure you can handle all these? And I said, yes, absolutely. I wanted to do as much as I could if, you know, so I worked my tail off and submitted all of them on time for the deadline. And um, so one thing led to another where Gary was looking for a co-author to write the famous dungeon itself. And um, so he and Steve Chenault, who was the publisher at Troll Lord Games, asked me if I would be interested in doing it. So I was like, of course. So that's basically how I fell into it. It started off as just a lucky uh, you know, finding this post on the internet. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, That's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And so you did that from 2005 to 2008. And I just have to ask because, you know, it's, it sounds like things really took off for you there in 2005. I thoroughly enjoyed so many movies that came out in 2005. Would you concur with my sentiment that 2005 is maybe the best year, the best single year of the 2000s? 
I don't know. <laughs> I guess I can't concur. I don't concur. Fair enough. <laughs> Give me the tell me the movies. Well, I mean, Batman Begins is a good one, but uh, my uh, favorite yes. movie of all yeah. time is Sin City. And oh yeah, that, Sin City was great. Yeah, came out I met Frank Miller and got his autograph in a Sin City comic book. Oh, nice. Yeah. How was Frank when you met him? He was kind of like he wasn't really. He was just kind of going through the motions. He wasn't okay. the. Mo I wouldn't say he was the most personable guy. Mm -hmm. And now, I had actually heard that before, and I was in line that some people said he was kind of a jerk. But uh, I mean, he was fine. But he wasn't someone that you know you could tell that he wasn't very interested in interacting with the people who were in line to get his autograph. Mm -hmm. which is completely opposite for what I saw with like Gary Gygax. Uh, you know, when, uh, when, when I was working for him and we would do Gen Con, um, people would be lining up through the aisles of Gen Con. And I, I saw Gary treat every fan like they were an old friend mm -hmm. and they would share their stories about, you know, different stuff. Like, you know, I learned how to read by playing D and D or, you know, this helped me so much when I was young and, all these different things like, you know, people telling him that, you know, it helped them to get a job and <laughs> by, you know, dungeon mastering skills. And so, I mean, he was so gracious. So I, I learned a lot watching how from him, how, you know, how to respect uh, these fellow gamers and, and really that they should be treated like peers. Mm -hmm. That's, that's very good to hear. I, I never got to meet Gary because by the time I got into uh, by the time I got into gaming, uh, Gary had been dead for a few years. Um, so I, you know, I never got the chance to meet him. But it's it's great that that so many people had such a great impression of him and that he seemed to be a, a very yeah. you know, genuine and engaging uh, presence in the community. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, now. And and I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but I just have sure. to know: was the Frank Miller meeting within the past ten years? Because I know at at a certain point, with health issues and other things going on in his personal life, uh, Frank Miller very much changed. Um, this was uh, this was, I would say, in the early to mid nineties. Okay, gotcha. So so even prime Frank Miller was was a little bit disengaged. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha fair enough maybe he was tired i don't know yeah, possibly it's all good <laughs> and then uh just the other big movie from 2005 that i really enjoy is a movie called thank you for smoking uh, i don't know what aaron, that is it's uh it's got aaron eckhart and jk simmons and robert duvall okay. it's about a tobacco uh lobbyist and kind of his story in in washington it's it's an interesting movie oh okay it sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I have a big choice when it comes to the 2000s, the best year for movies. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I was looking at something the other day that was like something from 1983, and it was the list of movies that were all in the theaters at the same time, and it was mind-blowing, uh, all these different, you know, that became iconic films years later, and they were all in the theater at the same time. You know, if you look around at some of those, you know, the year, you know, when they encapsulate a sort of a year in film, it's mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing to see, you know, how some of these great movies that we grew up loving were competing with, you know, with each other for people's dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
like if you if you you know think about it, t- two of the uh, two of the big movies that really got people uh, interested in adventures and D and D two that are often cited uh, when I talk to people about their inspirations. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in nineteen eighty one, and then yep. Conan the Barbarian in nineteen eighty two. Those just a year apart there. Right, right. Those are two huge inspirations for me as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love that stuff. And I, I heard that they're making a new Raiders of the Lost Ark and that um, Harrison Ford got hurt on the set recently or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Arguably too old to still be doing that. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to touch that one tonight. Right. Right. <laughs> so when it comes to Hyperborea and, and this specific game setting that you uh, you find yourself, uh, you know, releasing today and and here to you know talk about this campaign where did hyperborea come from and and how did that start um so when when i was when i was young i was fascinated with the idea of hyperborea in the in the conan tales mm-hmm. and um and it's, it's actually funny because back in the um in the 1980s i used to play a um, play-by-mail game it was a war game called Hyborian War, and you pick a nation from the Hyborian Age of Conan, hmm. and you you fight these other nations, and it's all about conquering. You know, you could play Samaria, you could play Aquilonia, or Turan, or these different um, nations, and it was this beautiful map. Hmm. And I would always pick Hyperborea because they were sort of these, you know, these uh, evil sorcerers and warriors and witches and stuff like that. And I thought it was the coolest thing. I never won the game. I never actually didn't well at it, but I was persistent with it. And um, so it was basically that you fill out your turn and you mail it, mail it in, you know, because it was before the internet. It, it changed to an internet game, I think, in the nineties. <laughs> and so I used to, I, I was, so I was fascinated with with them. Um, you know, there was a Hyperborean character that was in the Conan story, Tower, Tower of the Elephant, <laughs> and so. Um, you know, different stuff like that got me interested. And then as I got older, I started to read um, more about the Greek mythology of Hyperborea. And then I got into Clark Ashton Smith's Hyperborean cycle, which really opened up, you know, my imagination with, you know, these, uh, what a combination of, of, you know, the, the pulp fiction representations of Hyperborea through Smith and through Howard mm-hmm. and, and, and the original, uh, Greek tales that were related to that, you know, that were re- spoken by, by like Herodotus and Pindar and different um, Greek philosophers. Mm-hmm. And so I got really into all that stuff. And so it was, it was, um, you know, I, I reached a point in, in, in my uh, role-playing game design career where all of a sudden I had, you know, the most awesome gig working for Gary in developing Castle Zagig to suddenly finding myself without a job because mm-hmm. his widow had canceled all his creative works. Mm-hmm. And um, so I decided, you know, after, after having worked on a project for years and really not um, benefiting from that in, in any financial way, mm-hmm. um, I decided to take, take my ball and, and, you know, go home and create my own game, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I knew I wanted to do something that was, um, inspired by, uh, 
by the pulps and but then also on the mechanics side inspired by the works of Gygax and Arneson and so I sort of merged these things together during a time where you know it was I didn't see too many games that were a game married to a setting in fact um, a lot of popular notions had it that that was the wrong thing to do that you should create um, a generic system that can be applied to a number of different themes and settings, right? So you create a system that can then be applied to some type of modern horror or, you know, high fantasy or, you know, a darker fantasy, a sword and sorcery or science fiction even. And that's the way it should be done is what I was hearing in a lot of places. And I decided I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do it my own way. I wanted to create, um, I wanted to create not only a setting, but rules that actually supported that setting uh, so that it's not just a generic set of rules, that the character classes are actually built on themes that are explored in the, in the, the lands and histories of this setting. Hmm. And so uh, in the monsters and the spells and different things like that. So, um, so it re really was a, a marriage of those two different concepts of setting and and mechanics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, if, if you look at the the RPG landscape of that time, you're looking at stuff like uh, you know the the D twenty boom happening right then. Everyone's uh, you know treating kind of those those uh, D and D D twenty rules as a generic system, you know, Savage right. World shows up at the time. So that's, yeah, that's kind of all the rage then. Because because everybody hated 4th edition D&D so much. So they were all looking at these different D20 third party creators who were still sort of riffing off the general idea of 3rd edition D&D, but then stuff like Savage Worlds coming out. Yeah, that, that was, that was you know, very popular as well. And uh, so, yeah, definitely, I agree with that. So... You've done a good job describing it already, but let's say there's someone out there who is only familiar with like, uh, you know, 5th edition D&D &D or, you know, some of the more popular modern games right now. How would you describe Hyperborea to that person with the hopes of getting them to, to pick up a book? Sure. You know, it's actually interesting that I found um, in the last uh, two, three years now, that most of my uh, uh, newer customers, newer people who are getting interested in playing this game come from a fifth edition background or even maybe a Pathfinder background because there may be new players or in some cases they're older players who played an early form of D&D back in the day and then they got back into it because fifth edition was basically a good gateway drug to get back in. Mm -hmm. But they find themselves curious about older styles of play and, and variant styles of play. So, um, you know, basically how I describe it is it's, it's, um, it's less super heroic than what you would find in fifth edition. You know, survivability is, um, is, is definitely not as high, uh, because fifth edition sort of, um, uh, caters to and nurtures the development of characters in such a way, in, in my estimation, that makes um, it a little harder to die, right? Yeah. So you can get really attached to your character from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Whereas an older style of 
play, you sort of like, you know, like, oh, you know, I, I hope this guy makes it to fifth level. I hope I can make it to, I hope my, you know, my, my magician can make it to fifth level so I can get that lightning bolt. Right. Mm. And, um, so also how I like to, um, describe it is that there is a lot more, um, resource management involved. Um, the newer style of play, there is a lot at your fingertips and it's at your fingertips, um, you know, uh, pervasively through, throughout, you know, you could, you, uh, uh, some type of sorcerer class can fire a firebolt, right? Uh, uh, constantly and do damage. Well, there's really no such thing in older style play. You, so you're really considering when you're going to cast that spell, when it's the right time and you may conserve it more. And so, um, you know, that, uh, it, it's to some people, it may seem like, oh, you know, that, you know, I'd rather be able to do something all the time. But when you have resource management at work, you really, uh, when you do do something, use your spell and it's effective, it's really meaningful in the game. And you feel like you made this huge contribution. And um, so there's just a different general feeling. I think that you can, when you have everything at your fingertips all the time, you can get a little bit jaded. <laughs> and so I guess it's just a different sort of style and vibe. But at the end of the day, really what it's about is um, your uh, creativity and your collaboration with your friends and family playing these games. So I think that there are some subtle differences, like I described, but for the most part, when it really comes down to it, if you have a, you know, a good game master and that has creative ideas and is really engaging and the players become engaged with what's going on, that's really the most important thing because uh, rules sort of disappear into the background and, and all the other smaller nuances. And it's really about that, you know, that fun and gameplay. Absolutely. Yeah, and in chat over here, uh, looks like Crafty Matt Craft uh, kind of came from that, that old school background and then got back in through 5th edition. It also sounds like he has uh, at least made several car payments for you, if nothing else. <laughs> uh, yep, I'm familiar with Matt. So Matt, welcome, and uh, Captain Courageous has joined us here as well. Oh, excellent. Yes, that's David. He'll be doing his show uh, later this week. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, Captain Courageous, hopefully I don't uh, steal all the questions that, that you asked. <laughs> so, uh, I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are people out there who do this a, a hell of a lot better than I do because they've been doing it for far longer than me. So I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure he'll be able to... Uh... Oh, apparently he's stealing mine. All right, so there we go. <laughs> hope, you're, hope you're taking notes. <laughs> so, That's great. So this is now the, the kind of third edition of Hyperborea that's on Kickstarter right now. Yes. Uh, when it comes to deciding, you know, when this particular system needs a new edition, uh, what's kind of the criteria of it's time now for uh, the third edition of Hyperborea besides, you know, here, here's a good jumping on point. What, what sure. mechanically kind of drives that? Okay, well, I have a, a good answer to that. <laughs> because 
you know, it started off where we sold out of the um, the second edition hardback, which was a complete all-in-one book. Mm-hmm. And it sold out a lot quicker than I had anticipated. I wasn't ready for it. I started to, uh, I started to, I started to panic a little bit that I, you know, I'm not going to have a, you know, a game available and it's, it's my core product. And so how it all began was, you know, well, if we're going to do a new printing, printing of the book, let's commission some new cover, a new cover painting. And so then it becomes like, oh, well, let's add some more interior art. Maybe we'll add some new character class art and some new monsters. And then it's like, well, let's start to, you know, let's, I think the layout can be improved a little bit. Let's, you know, start adjusting some of the layout. And then, you know, you start to look at some of the character classes and the spells and you're like, oh, I think that spell has the wrong range, you know, or the duration is really short because the duration is really short on that spell, no one ever wants to cast it, you know? So let's change that. And these little things, you know, you change an ability for a class or something. And these little things start to build up and they start to compile. And you reach that point where you realize, um, this is not a reprint of the second edition of the book anymore. This is actually, you know, it would have gone from reprints to edition. Yeah. But that being said, um, I like to look at um, the three editions of the game, sort of the way the guys in Chaosian have done Call of Cthulhu over the years. Well, I guess with the exception of seventh edition Call of Cthulhu, which was really the, you know, the biggest jump for them uh, mechanically from the original edition. But there've been very subtle changes and improvements over the years with the various first six editions of that game. And so I sort of embrace that sort of philosophy where backwards compatibility is really important to me. So whether you're playing the original box set edition of the game, Hyperborea, or the second edition complete hardback, or if you have the third edition that will you know, be publishing in the near future, you can still buy any one of our adventure modules and play it without any issues. I, I like to say that it's about 95% compatible. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. And then uh, Matt in chat here again uh, wants to know why you changed the combat phases. I don't know if that's something you want to you want to talk about here, uh, but if if you do want to address, sure. That, yeah, that's yeah, it's not ahead. a problem. Not everyone is familiar with with it, but in mm-hmm. in the uh, original edition and first edition of the game, we had a two phase combat system, which which you can basically. Um, which your character can be doing a a few different things in the course of the round. Basically, it could be involves some movement in combat or uh, casting a spell followed by some movement. And using the phases basically determined whether you would go in the beginning of the round or the end of the round. So ideally, (laughs) in the perfect world, the the game um, has... um, uh, a group initiative mechanic, okay? Yep. So uh, the players roll a d6, and the and the game referee rolls a d6, and the highest roll goes first, and ties are resolved by in order of dexterity. <laughs> so um, before you roll, make that initiative roll, you, you declare your actions if you're playing it by the book. So action declaration is the first thing that you do before you make that initiative roll. <laughs> and so depending what, ideally how it would work by the two-phase system, 
depending on what you say that you want to do, the referee would then decide if you're going to be able to perform in the first phase or if you're going to be performing into the second phase or possibly both. So that could be related to how much you move or different things that you would announce. So in theory, I always thought it was um, a great idea. But in execution, I found that um, for a lot of people, a lot of fellow referees and gamers around the world, that it was the thing that I got the most complaints about, that they just couldn't wrap their heads around the two-phase system. I had people asking questions like, you know, am I supposed to be at doing action declaration for each of my phases, you know, and things like that. And that wasn't really the intent. And I've seen it, you know, debated. And so I decided to that it was time to simplify it to a form that was actually closer to how I was running it with my home group anyway, mm-hmm. uh, especially at conventions like that was real barometer for me over the years, you know. I've been running this game at various conventions since about um, 2010. So in over 10 years of playing it with different people from around the country and trying to sort of explain how the phase system works, I've gotten a lot of blank stares in a lot of cases. And so I always come back to the same thing. You don't need to know how it works. Just tell me what you want your character to do and I'll let you know, you know, how that gets resolved through the rules. But, you know, I, I just wanted to sort of peel it back a little bit and be less complex and mm-hmm. make it more intuitive for everybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like Matt uh, asking the, the question here in chat is a little bit more into the crunch. But when, when it comes down to it, I ultimately uh, just myself fall more into the... Uh, the simple rules, you know, the the keep it simple, stupid principle when it yeah. comes to a lot of these mechanics. It sounds like uh, that's what you ran into a lot at the the various conventions. So, yeah, I mean, as far as as far as initiative and stuff like that goes, while while some people uh, do enjoy crunch, uh, there are certain aspects that that need that simplicity and initiative. Knowing when you're going and and you know how to say what you want to do that's very important especially to osr type gamers it's they don't like a lot of roll this add this and if your car has half a tank of gas and the sun is at this precise angle you get to go in this order right <laughs> right Jupiter is aligned with Venus. <laughs> yep, but but then there's always that one guy who's like, actually, that system is perfect, and and right. and, and Matt, I'm not saying that's you. Taskmaster, <laughs> right? Is it? Yep. Ha- Absolutely. But yeah, that that is it. It is definitely. Uh, it does come down to preference a lot. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, if there's people that love that two-phase system, there's nothing to stop them from continuing to run it that way if they so choose. But as far as the rules in the book of third edition, we're just simplifying it a little bit and sort of cutting it down to a, a, a one, you know, just one phase, basically. So it's just your, you know, your action. Absolutely. Now, because so much of this is, uh, you know, very inspired by Robert E. Howard uh this is something that i love to talk about 
and something that I haven't gotten to talk about uh, recently, when, when it comes to Conan specifically, uh, there are what I call the three Conans. There's movie Conan, book Conan, and then comic Conan. And from what you've said, it sounds like a lot of your inspira inspiration is coming from the, the literary side. Uh, but when I look at the, like, the trade dress and some of the stuff that I've seen from Hyperborea books uh, that I've seen in the wild, there's a lot of that comic influence to it, too. Oh, so yeah, absolutely. Would you say that your tastes kind of lie more in the, in the literary and comic side of things when it comes to uh, Robert E. Howard? Um, well, you know, I, I want to say that I started my fascination with Conan with those old base paperbacks. So when I was young, my brother had a, um, my, I, I shared a room with two brothers at bunk beds in the room, small, we lived in a small ranch. And, uh, and, and when my oldest brother, Bob was getting older, my dad basically built him a basement room, a basement pad that would be his cool little, you know, room. So he had this bookshelf outside of his room where he had all these cool science fiction books and fantasy books. It's where he discovered, you know, J.R. Tolkien and, and Isaac Asimov and different weird stuff like that. And so, but the, but really those, uh, Frank Frazetta covers on those, uh, those books really fascinated me. But at, at the same time, I'm not sure if it was before or after my memory's a little hazy on it. I was getting into the Conan comic books. And I remember, I actually still remember the first Conan comic book that I ever bought. And, it's basically Conan is in this arena and he's fighting this big bear. And it's like the, it seems like the bear is going to kill him. And so he manages to get these shackles, this chain and wrap it around the bear's neck, and choke the bear to death. And I was just so fascinated by that when I was a kid. I remember I was reading it at my grandmother's house now because I was staying there. She lived um, down the beach and I used to go stay with her sometimes. And I remember I was so excited about it that I had to get a paper and pencil. I wanted to draw Conan choking out a bear <laughs> with this chain. And I drew it in all these different ways. I was so excited. So the comic books were definitely a, a huge uh, inspiration for me, too. The different, And I loved reading the different um, adaptations of various um, Howard tales. And, ba and, and I, I was always, uh, I always thought it was really cool to see the differences in how they were adapted in Conan the Barbarian versus savage sort of conan which had a lot less rules attached to it there was a lot more violence and nudity and things like that so of course when you're a kid you know you're just you know attracted to that you know, brutality and the sexuality all involved in this in this magazine it almost felt like you know you should be hiding it you know don't you don't want your mother to see that you have this magazine that she probably thinks is just a comic book so it was so it was fascinating for me at the time and um so I sort of carried that with me in over the years as one of my uh, primary inspirations, which is uh, so one of my artists uh, is Val Semex, who actually did some art for Savage Sort of Conan. He did a cull backup story mm -hmm. and he also did. He also drew Conan the Barbarian for a while. So yeah. he's pretty he's well known in those circles. Mm -hmm. And um, so I have the uh, the honor and pleasure of working with Val since uh, 2015 now, and he's still doing art for me now. I have some new art that he's done for the third edition Hyperborea book. Gotcha. So he's, yeah, so he's just, you know, he's, he's probably way. So you see behind me here, this, this uh, that's 
some of Val's art there, you know, so, mm-hmm. and, you know, so yeah, so it's just a, a big part of it. Yeah. Now, when it comes to those Marvel books, uh, I just have to ask, uh, do, do you think uh, John Buscema or uh, Barry Smith did kind of the, the better visual adaptation of, of I got, I mean, my favorite was Big John, especially when he was being inked by um, Alfredo Alcala. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just magic, I thought. But I love Barry Smith's art, and I think that I think that he was, even though I like Buscema better personally, I think that Smith was more important because he really set the tone of what was to happen, what was to go on after. And then I don't know that Buscema would have been as good as he was if he didn't follow in the footsteps of Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've got... I've got one of the collections. It just has uh, it just has Barry Smith stories in it. I, I haven't gotten the Savage Sword collection. Yeah, I think available. there was only like twenty five or twenty the first twenty five or twenty six issues that he did, or something like that. But yeah, and, and you can see this like if you read the the Weapon X saga, Barry Smith is a fantastic oh, yeah. artist. Uh, his detail work is phenomenal. The the things yeah. that he's able to bring out of those Conan stories. The, the way he draws, uh, you, you mentioned it already, the Tower of the Elephant, that adaptation yeah. in particular is fascinating. Oh, yeah. Loved but, it. But when it comes to my mental image of Conan the Barbarian, uh, I think John Buscema kind of pulls what what Howard describes and what my mind paints as a picture yeah. of Conan a little bit better than, than the way Smith draws him, which is not at all a knock on Barry Windsor Smith. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. That's pretty much how I feel as well. Gotcha. And before we, we move on, I'll, I'll just go ahead and, and drop that. My last name, Howard. I I'm one of those Howards. I'm, I'm related to, uh, to Robert E. Howard. You are? Yes. Yes, I am. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a distant relative Everyone at home, take a shot, because I mentioned that I'm a distant relative of Robert E. Howard. <laughs> I'm going to try and go at least two episodes now without bringing that up. Okay. <laughs> but, but yeah, I... Closely enough related that I can, you know, brag about it and say it's cool and go, but, well, yeah. my last name's Howard, and, you know, he's a fifth cousin, but not closely related sure. that I'm making any money off of Conan so, or anything like that. Right. I get you. Um, do you have you read, or do you prefer any of the biographies on him? I haven't actually dug into uh, any of the like outside biographies of him. The one that I have read is it was at the beginning of a Solomon Kane collection that I read. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's eulogy. Of oh Robert yeah, of Howard course. Is, yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah, that's quite famous. Mm-hmm. Um. Then I would give you a recommendation. Um, I've read several of them, and the one by Mark Finn called Blood and Thunder gotcha. is uh, an unbelievable biography on him. And he really uh, he really dug in and did an amazing amount of research into people that um, that knew Howard. And, um, you know, it's 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 sort of uh, a more um, I would say it's a more objective take on Howard than what we saw in the past when DeCamp was um, 
was doing, you know, his biographies on him when he was basically functioning as as an armchair psychologist, Mm -hmm. which, you know, which a lot of people take issue with for the right reasons. Yeah. I mean, uh, of course, it's sad how, you know, Robert ended his life uh, when he did and how he did. But, um, but I really found that Finn's biography was uh, really fascinating because so much of it, um, when he gets into Howard's um, early life, is really an examination of what it's like to live um, in that Texas small frontier town mm-hmm. that overnight turns into an oil boom town yeah. and how the, the impact that that had on him. Mm-hmm. And it really, it actually, when you when you look at it and you read how Finn describes it, it really makes a lot more sense of about Howard's running theme of civilization versus barbarism and his mm-hmm. thoughts on on that and why he had this ongoing debate with H.P. Lovecraft about mm-hmm. the merits of barbarism versus the merits of civilization. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's you know it's a really uh, you know like I said a fascinating biography. I would be interested, and this this is like some some weird academic stuff that I'm getting into now, but I, I would be really interested in some kind of work comparing and contrasting uh, Howard's thoughts and themes about barbarism versus civilization with uh, Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. I think there's a lot of interesting ground to, to be covered there. Not saying that Robert E. Howard would ship bombs to people making computers, but right. <laughs> uh, having read the Unabomber manifesto, that is a, that like that's Kaczynski's whole mission statement is that uh, civilization has become out of control. So, you know, setting those two things next to each other and seeing, you know, how these two different guys who came to similar conclusions about the modern world they lived in, uh, you know, how they reached those conclusions. That that would be an interesting exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it would. And, uh, Matt, I have read at least the Jason Aaron Conan, and I thought it was pretty good. I haven't read anything after. I haven't read Jim Zub's Conan. I should read some of what he's doing, because... Obviously, Jim Zub is a huge uh, gamer and and you know contributor to D and D in particular. So, uh, but yeah, I, I do like some of the the newer Conan comics that have been coming out too. Have you read any of those, Jeff? Um, I have purchased several of them, but I have not dug in to read them yet. Gotcha. So, but I I was actually curious about Zub's work as well because I've I've heard. <laughs> I, don't, I guess I've heard some good things, but I've heard some, you know, it's, it's tough because, you know, critics are a dime a dozen. So I'm, you know, you're not sure. It's like, I like to judge something myself and try not to take critiques with a grain of salt, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my only issue with, uh, I, and I've not perused enough of Zub's work, both in and out of gaming to have formed a, an opinion on his like body of work, but, um, one thing that I kind of took issue with, uh, when he did the Rick and Morty D&D set, he had this whole, uh, note that was from Rick talking about how it's all about power and role-playing and how that's the most important thing to, to players. And having kind of entered this, uh, 
this OSR space, which is very much about not making characters as powerful as they can be, but, you know, giving them a struggle to overcome so that when they have that power, you know, there's been a journey that they've been on to become this powerful thing. I took a little bit of issue. Yeah. Yeah, I I took a little bit of issue with, uh, his statement there, uh, you know, saying that D and D was all about power. Uh, right. which maybe, I mean, was it supposed to be tongue in cheek though? I don't know. And that's the thing. That's, that's why I'm not going to, you know, say Jim Zub's a moron. Cause, right. uh, it could have just been, again, he was writing it as Rick Sanchez. So it could have sure, just yeah, been, this so. is what Jim Zub thinks Rick would think. Right. Right. But when yeah, I, I could see that, but, but when I look at fifth edition, I'm like, maybe fifth edition is all about power. I don't know. I mean, I I've played it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've played it somewhat, but I played a heavily house ruled version of it. Yeah. So I'm not completely familiar with all the ins and outs of fifth edition, mm-hmm. but it does seem to me that the power curve is substantially higher. You can you can achieve quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I was playing a ranger for a time, and the ranger could cast spells, and I found that like at a at a low level, I could heal the entire party as a ranger. And it just seemed to me, it just seems absurd to me. I, was, I couldn't believe that I could do it, but I could mm-hmm. allocate all my spell slots to these healing spells. And I had so many spells and all, and I could, you know, function as a complete healer for the party after a battle. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, that was one of my first indications to me that this is like, wow, this is really unbelievable amount of power. You know, you have to be um, so, I, I'd want to say in if you were playing AD&D first edition, I think you'd have to be like an eighth level ranger before you could even get like a druid cure light wound spell mm-hmm. or, or something like that. So it's, you know, it, it's so different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It doesn't, it's not necessarily wrong either. It, like I said earlier, it's just a different mm-hmm. type of play style. It's a different type of expectation for the participants at the table. Yeah, absolutely. My again, I, I love fifth edition. I play it all the time. It's it's the system that I learned on. It's it's how I got in. Uh, but yeah, there is something weird about uh, being a ranger and you reserve the one spell slot for Hunter's Mark so you can get your damage each round. But then everything else you can pretty much just put into cure wounds. And... That's exactly what I did. Was yeah. the, two, the two that I had. Mm hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and then and uh, Matt again in chat here makes a good point that uh, you know one e two e b x DCC does this really well. It's about going uh, from farm to hero, and then five e is about going from hero to superhero. Sure. Yeah, I guess that's an, an apt analogy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it it's fun sometimes. Most of the time. I'll say most of the time, but it... Personally, I'm seeking a different challenge, but I'll save that for next week, because Eric Tankar is going to be on. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. So, when it comes to this particular uh, campaign that we have here, uh, first of all, for for the third edition, who all is contributing from the art side of things? Oh, good, great question. So, um... Charles Lang, who did the um, the art for the original box set of the game, and then the um, second edition hardback, which you can see right here. Um, Charles Lang is back. It's a two. We're doing a two volume set this time, mm-hmm. so 
he's done the uh, the cover art for both of the books, and uh, they both look fantastic. You can see them both on the uh, the Kickstarter page, and in the video on the Kickstarter page. And um, so he's back, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, um, Val Smex is back, and um, Val did um, a few different pictures that have been um, colored by Daisy Bingham. Uh, Daisy is an incredible colorist, and she has been coloring Val's work for us for years now. So they have a um, they have a, a great relationship as far as her understanding, um, you know, what he's doing in the picture when he draws. So it's a great uh, collaboration between the two of them from from <laughs> two different sides of the world because he lives in. Uh, upstate New York and she lives in New Zealand. <laughs> um, so then um, her husband, Jonathan, has been uh, uh, doing art for Hyperborea uh, since uh, she's going back to about 2010. So John's been doing art for us forever. Um, so yeah, so Jonathan is back. And so then, oh, so then some of the other um, color uh Plate. So we do these color. It's mostly a black and white book, but we do full color plates within. Mm-hmm. And so we have Peter Mullen back. He's doing he's doing a few uh, color pictures that are in there as well. Um, we have uh, David Miller, who's uh, a, a fantasy artist as well. He's he did a lot of work in um, AD and D uh, second edition and various other TSR uh, stuff in the nineties before he primarily went into a, a, a different career path with commercial art. Um, but he still really enjoys uh, taking part in fantasy art. So uh, we have uh, Mike Tenebrae, who's a South African artist. Uh, he's been doing some art for us for a few years now. He did a beautiful cover for our um, Rats in the Walls um, adventure module, which is... Um, you know, inspired by the H.P. Lovecraft story of the same name. Mm-hmm. And um, so then uh, one of the one of the other great features of this uh, of the third edition hardback is that I mentioned earlier how I, you know, I, I decided that, you know, when we were going to reprint the second edition that oh, maybe I should do some new, uh, new character, player character art. And so um I brought on Diogo Neguero, who's uh, is uh, from Brazil, who's a great artist, and he is uh, he, he's a brilliant creator. He's an artist. He's a writer. He designs games. He designs all kinds of um, shorter running fantasy games, like beer and pretzel type games. And he's good. he's got an incredible imagination of between science fiction games that he creates and zombie apocalypse apocalypse games and all kinds of stuff. If you, if you look him up, Diogo Naguera, he's a really uh, inventive, creative person. So he's done all the character class art. So he's done 26 different um, character class illustrations. Um, we have uh, Del Tigler, who's come back. Del has um, gone back to the drawing board for us as far as uh, redrawing all the weapons. And he's, uh, he's a great student of uh, weapons through the ages. So when you ask him to draw a long sword or a spear, he's going to give you eight different versions of it, of <laughs> and how it's been portrayed, how it's been, uh, how they've been forged in various cultures of the world. So he's uh, he's really great at that, and he's also doing these beautiful um, chapter frames. 
So it's like when you have the open spread of the book, it's a frame that goes all the way around the outside edge on, uh, of the book that it will have all these different like characters and events going on and things like that. And all the things that are sort of related to that chapter when that chapter starts. So it's a, a great um, diversity of uh, creative talents who are contributing to the, um, um, to the next edition of the book. Um, we have a new editor, uh, George Sedgwick, who is, uh, who's got uh, some great experience himself, uh, working in the field. And, uh, he's also a, a high school, uh, English teacher. So he, he brings that experience with him. Um, so it's, it's really great. And then, um, so we're also coupling the, uh, the release of the game with a new adventure module. And the adventure module is called The Late Trapper's Lament. And it's a great introductory adventure. I like to give like a, provide like a early, a nice early low level adventure when you come out with something new like this so that people who are jumping on for the first time, um, have the opportunity to, you know, have, have, uh, something new to experience with it. So this, uh, adventure has been written by David Prada, who is a, um, longtime editor of the, Hyperborea game, and uh, so he's written this adventure that is going to be uh, featured, that is being featured in this Kickstarter. And, um, you know, others, other creators, uh, uh, Glenn Seal, uh, who is an amazing cartographer and game designer as well. Um, we went back to the Hyperborea map that he drew for the second edition and we recolored it and, and relaying it out with some different um, text labeling and stuff like that. It's essentially the same map, but it's been, it, but the colors are more vibrant. I feel that it's a better, um, color palette. And we're also trying something different in the, um, in the, in the second edition hardback, the map was, um, uh, a 32 inch by 40 inch folded map that was tucked into the book, which is great. And, but one of the things that I like to try to feature with everything that I do with this game is game utility. I always want something. I'm always trying to think of what works best at the table. And the way that I usually figure this out is convention games and playing with my Tuesday night crew. And although a folded up map is great and you can stick it on a tack it onto a wall or you can throw it out on the table in front of everyone, I decided that this time around I wanted to try something a little bit different. We're doing an atlas this time. So it's basically like a saddle stitch booklet of full color sections of the map so that you can just you can it's it's more easily accessible. It's so the the game referee can have it right next to him or her and be referring to a, a portion of the map of Hyperborea and not have to worry about unfolding this monstrous poster right mm -hmm. to find where you are. And it's also useful for the players because it can just be passed around the table or whatever or laid out wherever. Mm -hmm. So. I think that we'll do some type of special material map that will, can be displayed like we've done before. Uh, we've done canvas maps in the past, which have been very popular. We'll probably do something like that with this new uh, fancy colored version of the Hyperborea map. But for this project, we're going forward with this, um, with this Atlas by uh, Glenn Seal. And I think it's going to look great. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very much a lot of the same, um, people that we've been um, working with for years. And one of the great things too that I've got going on 
with this is, is um, my daughter is also an artist, Sky, and she has done a couple of new illustrations for the book as well that are going to be included. And her oh, art sweet. is phenomenal. You wouldn't know that if you were flipping through the pages of this book and looking at these seasoned veteran artists, you would not be able to tell the difference that one of a couple of these pictures were uh, illustrated in pen and ink by a 14-year-old girl. Yeah. So Fair it's enough. great. Awesome. And guys, this is uh, currently on Kickstarter. It's going for the next 26 days as of uh, the the time we're having this conversation right now. Um, And there's all kinds of great stuff you can get here. Uh, One of my favorites, uh, not mentioning even the, you know, the player's handbook, the the referee's manual, the Atlas, and uh, the Late Trapper's Lament, but there is also an add-on for uh, a, a black metal logo Hyperborea t-shirt, which, if uh, if you're into that kind of stuff, uh, yeah. is awesome. Yeah, so we have that, and we do... So that logo is also being um, stamped um, with, uh, with foil stamping onto a leatherette cover, which is an alternative version of the book hmm. um, that people can order. And, um, so it's, I've actually, you know, it was one of those things where I came up with this idea of doing, uh, um, uh, like a death metal version logo or a black metal version logo of Hyperborea. I thought like, you know, what if we stamped it on a leatherette type of cover? And, you know, I bet some people will like it. Well, it's turned out to be hugely popular. That pledge level has been doing just as well as the pledge level for the standard book. So I guess a lot of people uh, agree that it sort of resonates with them. I mean, whether you don't even have to be into that type of music to just look at it and say that thing is pretty cool, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it very much fits with, uh, you know, kind of the the tone and, and the world of Hyperborea itself. So, uh, I, yeah, like, that's a yeah, little bit you know, harder than I like my music. But, you know, that kind of logo and, and stuff, that that's an aesthetic I can appreciate. Yes, I mean, so so here's the deal. There's this company called Turned Metal, mm-hmm. and what Turned Metal does is they'll take your logo, they can take Rolling Bones, and they will make a metal version of your logo. It, it, it's not, it might not look necessarily like mine. It could be, you know, dripping blood, or it could look like some weird tree or something like that. However the heck you would want it, you can just, just, you just describe it to them, and they make a metal version of your logo. So those are the people who did this for me and they did a fantastic job. They gave me a couple of options too. They, they draw a few different things and they basically want to know, you know, so which direction are you thinking? Which, you know, which one do you kind of like? And then they take it from there, from the pencil stage to, you know, digitally, digitally recreating it. And I was, I was happily surprised to see, you know, how awesome it came out. Absolutely. Now, musically, is that kind of like where your where your tastes lie, or uh... I do like that stuff, but gotcha. it's not my favorite type of stuff. Mm. My you know my whole life, my favorite two bands have been Iron Maiden and Rush. Okay, so that's that's where that's you know where my my favorite stuff. But I'm also a big classical music we're, we're fan. We're gonna get along so just cool. fine. <laughs> <laughs> Great, I love Power Windows. <laughs> Great stuff. I, I love those two bands as well. Iron Maiden is kind of a more recent thing for me, but you know, I mean, Rush is right up my alley there. So yeah, yeah. In fact, I was I was wa- I was walking around North Texas on uh, Friday with a Rush T-shirt on. So oh, nice! I can't believe I didn't notice you. 
You must have a forgettable face. Maybe I do. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Although I was the only one there, and again, not trying to throw too much shade at it. I was the only one there, uh, or one of the few there that that had uh, my my hair is this color, and and you know I, I'm under forty. Right. So you're not bald or gray. Yeah, I'm not bald or gray. I don't have a ponytail. The a ponytail like the comic book guy from yes. The Simpsons. No offense. No offense, everyone. <laughs> hey, I can make fun of people's hair because I'm bald. So you, you you got me beat either way. You know, I make fun of somebody's hair, and that's the, the, the typical joke. You know, because I I make my brother went gray. When he was in high school, he had this weird thing when gotcha. he started getting gray hair in high school. So uh, my whole life, I've been making fun of him. I'm like, oh, wow, your hair looks a little grayer. His hair's all white now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I say to him, why is your hair getting grayer? And of course, it always comes back to, well, at least I have gray- I have hair, you know. <laughs> so it always comes back to that. <laughs> was it was it punishment for all the jokes that you hurled his way? Yeah, I suppose so. You know, I had long hair in the 80s and, you know. I remember being like a young 20 something, 22 years old and, you know, taking a shower and looking down at the shower ring and seeing all this hair in the shower ring. And, oh no, what's, <laughs> what is happening here? So yeah, the writing was on the wall or the shower ring as it were. Yeah, my, my dad is completely bald. So, uh, I, I'm afraid every day that, that this might not last. <laughs> enjoy it while you've got it right mm-hmm. although i am by the time my dad was my age he had completely lost all of his hair so i think i yeah. think i can hold on to mine i think okay yeah so Maybe. there's that <laughs> so like i said this is on kickstarter right now uh it is fully funded uh actually fully funded in was it seven minutes uh for seven minutes uh, it was 17 yeah 17 gotcha yeah Gotcha. So Hyperborea is coming. Uh, you still have time to jump on it, though. Uh, plenty of great reward tiers here. Uh, if you want PDFs, if you want print. Uh, I like that you've bundled the PDFs with all the print tiers. Uh, yep. I know that's pretty much expected practice, but there are some companies, uh, magic users who live uh, on the ocean who don't do that kind of thing. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, we only do it during our Kickstarters. Once the Kickstarter is done, we sell our PDFs on Drive-Through RPG, and yep. we don't manage any of that. It's its own separate thing, and we sell books mm-hmm. from our website. So gotcha. it's not really a thing that we do after. Mm-hmm. I know that some companies can do that because they have they have their own internal servers, yep. and there they can just pump out PDFs. And so it's not part of our business model after the Kickstarter. So it's a nice mm-hmm. little perk during the Kickstarter that for people who want both. Personally, I don't really get into PDFs. I start to read them and my bothers my eyes after oh, yeah. a little while. I much more prefer print. It's a good it's a good tool though to access things, especially some of these. Um, you know, when when you want to you know go to drive through RPG and pick up like an old um, AD and D module or something like that that you'd like to check out, and you know you can get it really cheap as opposed to you know, the collector's market the way it is because the collector's market for these older materials has gone completely berserk in the last mm. year or two. Prices are just insane. It's it's kind of funny because it's it's like the, the role-playing game collectible market has finally become similar to the comic book 
market, right? Where all of a sudden these things that were easily accessible for years have suddenly shot up in huge amounts of value. Oh yeah. Even some of the like newer stuff, um, just because of like limited print runs, one of my grails is finding a complete set of uh, Green Ronin's uh, D20 DC game uh, using the Mutants and Masterminds rules just because I'm a huge DC Comics guy. Uh, but those books are ungodly expensive. Yeah. Yeah, I have a similar thing because I'm a, uh, I, I'm a huge Michael Moorcock fan and um, the, um, the Hawkmoon, I, I recently reread his Hawkmoon series so I decided I'd like to you know, try to get all the Hawkmoon books that were done, I think it was by Mongoose in the 2000s and it's just so impossible to find them and they're so expensive when you do you look on ebay and it's like uh i don't want to spend 60 bucks for it you know <laughs> i just want to read it yep yep same with saga editions for star wars that game's fantastic but again books are super expensive uh that kept me from buying a, a complete original dark sun box set in texas just oh, looking really? at it i was like oh no i was like eh, that I kind of like this. And then looking at it, I was just like, ooh, no, no. Oh, boy. Who had that? At, at in Games? With I think so. Games yeah, it? Yeah. Games. yeah. Uh, Dave Donahue, he, has, uh, he always has great stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's a big supporter of Hyperborea. He always carries it. He's, I'm sure he's, he's going to, if he's not in already, he'll be in on the retail pledge level mm-hmm. for the Kickstarter. He's one of the, he's been a uh, retailer who's carried our stuff for years. Absolutely. Well, we are, you know, coming up on the, uh, you know, the end of our time here. Um, obviously, the Kickstarter campaign, guys, if you uh, if you look up Hyperborea 3E, uh, you'll be able to find it. I'll put a link in the description when uh, the replays go up here. Uh, but besides the, uh, the campaign, uh, if there's anything else that you've got to plug uh, before we go off the air here, Jeff, uh, go ahead. The floor is yours. Uh, well, that, that's basically what we're doing right now. We do. Uh, I, I will say if you're watching this live tonight, I mean, if you see it on some kind of rebroadcast on YouTube, then it's not going to be applicable. But we do also have right now going on a 4th of July sale that's going to end tonight. Um, I may just extend it till tomorrow morning in case you're watching it now. But it's uh, basically a BOGO deal on the player's manual for our second edition book. So you buy one player's manual, we'll send you two. So uh, we have that going on right now. And um, so, but other than that, all our focus has been on this, uh, this Kickstarter campaign for the third edition of Hyperborea. So if you'd like to check that out, you know, watch the video and see the, the, all the new art that is being uh, featured in that and check out the different pledge levels. We have a variety of, you know, pledge levels that you can, that you can see in it from, you know, like uh, Ryan mentioned, you can get things in PDF or you can go to print or you can get those uh, those leatherette versions of the print, which are actually going to be signed and numbered to the leatherette ones. Hmm. And then we're going to have some cool add-ons like the T-shirt that he mentioned. And and um, and and, um, and if you wanted to just pick up just a player's manual, that's a more uh, reasonably uh, priced pledge level because it's not the full set of books. Uh and, you know, for every set of books that you order, you get an atlas. And then you, there's also that starter module that we talked about. So it's it's a lot of cool stuff. And uh, it's, you know, hopefully if it's if you're into, 
you know, sword and sorcery and weird science fantasy, and you want to do something that's a, a, a little bit different than your, uh, than your average high fantasy type game, and you want to experience something that's more, a little more uh, flavored in the sense of the, uh, the pulps of Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith and H.P. Lovecraft, and you want to sort of experience that uh, type of play, uh, you know, check it out. Absolutely. And if you can't get enough of Jeff and you want to hear a little bit more about Hyperborea 3E, uh, you're going to be doing a couple more appearances this week. Captain Courageous, you're going to be uh, on with yeah. him. So I'll uh, be on with Captain Courageous, and I'll also be on with uh, Bill Sylvie, who does mostly a, an AD&D uh, type of uh, uh, broadcast. So, yeah, so those two are coming up this week. And then... Um, uh, Later in the month, I'll have a few other ones, too, that I'll be announcing on various social media. You know, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And we also have a very active forum for Hyperborea where players exchange ideas. So if you go to hyperborea.tv, you can find our uh, community forums from there. And people come, people exchange ideas. They, you know, show their house rules and spells and and talk about their campaign and they ask questions and, you know, and generate ideas. So it's a lot of fun seeing the, the active community, um, you know, participating in that, in that manner. Gotcha. And then last question here before we sign off, are you planning on uh, going to game hole con this year? Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be an industry guest at game hole this year. Um, I, right now I have planned, um, uh, either three or four games that I'll be running. And I'm also taking part in a uh, panel discussion on game design. Awesome. So, um, so, oh yeah, I'll, I'll be there. Sweet. I'm looking forward to it. So any of you guys out there who are going to Game Hole Con, you'll be able to see him there. And I will see you there because I'm oh, good. going this year. It's my first Game Hole Con. Oh, nice. Don't be a stranger this time. Come up. If you see <laughs> Absolutely. me. Flag me down. <laughs> Absolutely, they've got that. They've got that fantastic GM's lounge that I've that I've heard about from the website. So that'll there will be lots of me walking up to people, going, "Hey, we did an interview, and I'm just introducing myself now." Yeah, that's cool. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much for uh, tuning in this evening. Uh, as I said earlier in the show, next week, Eric Tenkar from Tenkar's Tavern, he's going to be on. And uh, we are going to be talking a lot about not just his background, but I think the bulk of our conversation is going to talk about bringing some youth into the OSR movement, what that would look like, how to make it happen, um, and how to do so without taking away from what the OSR movement is and stands for and what makes it unique. So that's going to be an interesting conversation that I'm looking forward to having with Eric uh, you know, I'll be doing an introduction to Dungeon Crawl Classics, not a review, but an introduction to DCC sometime soon. And uh, towards the end of July, headed into August, we will be starting Nighthaven Shades of Grey, an actual play event with the Page Brothers, John and Joe, and the guys from Gamertarians. Uh, we'll be doing that here on Rolling Bones. That's all coming up soon. Uh, but until then, guys, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you guys next time.
Excelsior. Excelsior.